Welcome to KYH2O, a podcast about all things water in Kentucky. I'm Carmen Agaritas, an Extension Associate Professor in the Biosystems and Agricultural Engineering Department at the University of Kentucky. And I'm Amanda Gumbert, an Extension Specialist for Water Quality with the University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service. Join us as we get our feet wet exploring Kentucky's water resources. How are you doing, Carmen? Doing great, doing great. Good. So I got to go out in the field the other day with Russ Turpin. Uh, my name is Russ Turpin. I'm with EcoGrow, and we are at Clays Mill Elementary in Southland Park. Russ is a, um, a local botanist, uh, stream restoration guru, so to speak. Um, he's our, our plant person um, and, and works a lot in and around um, Central Kentucky on stream restoration projects. And so I caught up with Russ out at Clays Mill Elementary and Southland Park. So they've got a stream restoration project there behind Clays Mill Elementary. This was part of a LFUCG stormwater incentive grant program and so Fayette County Public Schools applied for a grant and received funding to do a, a variety of different stormwater improvement elements on the property. So when Russ and I were walking around um, you know I asked him some key questions about um, stream restoration and kind of the plant part and um, we heard earlier um, in one of our previous podcasts from Eric DeWalt, and Eric talked about the structural part of stream restoration. So kind of the, he referred to it as making sausage, and so the part that is the, the earth moving and the, the messy part a little bit. And rest really focuses on coming back after the, um, the, the, the big structural part has been completed. The stream banks have been laid back a little bit. They're not as steep. And then Russ comes in and um, tries to make it um, an environment that people are comfortable in. So we talked a little bit about, um, you know, plants and um, and maybe, you know, what people want to see when they're um, out at a stream. But the other thing we talked about is how plants can bring in ecosystem services um, and so so Russ talks um, about a few of those so let's hear what Russ has to say about some of those um, ecosystem services yeah well um, they're a big component you know there's certainly other types of uh, life forms that go along along streams people think about fish and frogs and amphibians and all that kind of stuff but plants are pretty good um, mostly because they are taking in a lot of the nutrients a lot of the nitrogen and phosphorus they have a means of absorbing those nutrients from our water and why that's kind of key as you might know is nitrogen and phosphorus are pretty high in our waterways so uh, that's something that a lot of the fish and you know, minnows and frogs and salamanders can't really do much for us on that so we really need plants because they are taking up a lot of those nutrients and storing them in, in woody materials so if it's trees or shrubs they're storing a lot of that material that's in our water that um, Truthfully, I think that's about the best way we've got for getting some of those nutrients out of our waterways. So Russ mentions nutrient uptake from the water and really thinking about nitrogen and phosphorus um, and, and how those plants can help to absorb some of those nutrients. But Carmen, you've got a lot of experience with stream restoration. What do you think are some other ecosystem services we maybe should think about? Yeah, Amanda, uh, riparian areas um, 
provides so many ecosystem services that we probably don't all the time think about. And Russ mentioned obviously nutrient uptake. So nutrients that could be in the water and the soil, plants are going to absorb those through the roots and up. But plants also at restoration sites or even sites that aren't restored provide things like stream bank uh, stabilization. So those roots help bind the soil, hold it in place and keep the, the banks from eroding away. They provide, uh, tall plants provide lots of shade for the water. So when we shade the water, it's like you or I standing in the shade, we feel cooler. So the water is going to be a little bit cooler. And the cooler our water is, actually the more oxygen it holds, which is great for things that live in the water like fish or um, bugs or things like that that we want to be in the water and be healthy. Um, the riparian vegetation, not just the water that's in the stream, but also the water that flows to the stream from our uplands as it runs downhill. It provides filtration for that water, which is another thing that we like. Um, but depending on what you plant, it could also provide uh, food for um, people, food for animals like birds or, or um, you know rabbits or anything like that. It provides places for um, uh, animals to hide, to live. So riparian buffers provide all kinds of those benefits, including just looking really nice, providing us with um, a pleasing landscape. Okay, so you just used the word riparian a bunch in that description. And we've talked about this before, but just to remind our listeners, riparian areas are really just those buffers between the water body and then and the upland land use. So that kind of the stream bank, we, we use those interchangeably a little bit when I talk about riparian buffers, stream side buffers, um, and, um, you know, in forestry, um, we call those... Um, streamside management zones. Um, so it, we're just really talking about that area um, adjacent to the stream, right? Right, that area where it's a transition from being right in the water to being where it's really dry. It's that, that transitional or middle area. Yeah. Russ and I took a walk and, and he was pointing out and describing some of the, the plants. Um, and one that he talks about is silky dogwood. I think he did a really good job of describing that. Yeah, so this is a silky dogwood. Uh, usually when I say the word dogwood, people think of the flowering tree that, that you see flowering in, in early spring, but this is a shrub type. So we have a few native shrub forms of dogwood, and this is silky dogwood. It will have a little white flower to it, a little cluster. Um, it's going to have some berries that wildlife really likes. Um, one of the neat features of it is this, this reddish stem. It's a pretty bright color, uh, especially you know in the winter time or off seasons when you don't have a lot of foliage. You can really see this reddish color, and that adds a lot of visual interest to the. Uh, to the landscaping that we're doing along the streams. Um, it's a great plant because it does like these wet environments. Um, it's really good at getting some roots along the stream bank and holding a lot of soil together. So it's doing a good job of that. It's a multi-stem shrub. So it does kind of spread out, but it does a lot of, um, does pretty well with catching leaves and catching other materials that might be floating down the creek. So it, it does help to act as a filter and uh, trap a lot of things that way. So it's it's got flowers, it's got a really interesting woody new growth to it. Uh, so in the, in the winter and fall, uh, it's got some visual interest and uh, it does really well. It's just, uh, it's really happy being along the creek. So Russ mentions silky dogwood as a beneficial plant, but he also 
we, we, while we were walking, I noticed there were some other plants that were starting to green up a little faster than the others. So it was early spring when we walked and some things were starting to leaf out and there were a few things that were really leafed out and they looked pretty healthy. And um, that one plant that was really bothersome was bush honeysuckle. So what do you know about bush honeysuckle? I know it, it takes a lot of effort to get rid of it. Um, it's also what we would consider an invasive plant, meaning it's going to, it's not native to this area. Um, and it's also, as you noticed, leafing out earlier, outcompetes a lot of our natives. So it'll usually be one of the first plants you see green up and one of the last plants you see to defoliate or lose its leaves. So we talk about invasives and um, I mentioned in when I was walking with Russ that you know some people might just say well it's a plant. You know, one of my first jobs in college when I started to understand what you know restoration meant was helping drag out hacked honeysuckle at the arboretum here at, at UK um, <clears throat> and some of the neighbors were really confused as to why we were cutting down vegetation because people just look at it and they think, well, you know, green is good, right? Plants are good and now you're cutting out plants. Um, but they are problematic because they don't offer the same ecosystem services. So we mentioned ecosystem services from the stream, but plants in an upland area also offer those um, as far as habitat and such. And so honeysuckle just is a little limiting on what it can really offer. Oh, that's, that's one I have to do a lot of work with. So that is bush honeysuckle. And as we're speaking, bush honeysuckle is one of the first plants to start leafing out in spring. And it's going to be one of the last ones to drop its leaves in, this, in the fall. So it's got a, a, a little bit of a longer growing cycle or growth period that most of our native plants do. So that allows that bush honeysuckle, it's going to have more time to grow. It can grow pretty quick. And so it's... Uh, coming in it's an, uh, an Asian species that was brought here for ornamental use and it has escaped really into our natural areas and and all through you know Lexington a lot of roadways and in areas uh, we can see a lot of bush honeysuckle coming in so yeah it, it takes a fair amount of of work it's not impossible to to knock it back but I it's one that I've I've got to contend with. I'm I'm giving a lot of preference to native plants because they have checks and balances. They've got to help create a healthy, balanced ecosystem. If this was all just bush honeysuckle, it would really suppress a whole lot of other plants. So in areas where there's a lot of bush honeysuckle, you don't see much uh, ground cover. You don't see many grasses or wildflowers. You don't see much diversity on this soil. So a lot of times where there's thick stands of bush honeysuckle there's often exposed soil underneath so that's a concern in terms of erosion sediment and again we're trying to keep that soil out of the creek so having areas where there's a lot of exposed soil underneath the bush honeysuckle that's not really in line with our goal so I do have to try and work to keep the bush honeysuckle in check um, my goal is not always to get rid of 100% of it, but as long as I've got a good, stable, healthy ecosystem, there's room for a little bit of everything. 
I just try and keep everything in moderation and keep everything in checks and balances. Now, Carmen, you and I both have been out to the site and we recently helped facilitate a workshop with some volunteers where we um, focused on an area of the um, of the restoration project that hadn't been planted. And so one of our tasks as facilitators is we had to choose which plants had to go where um, and, and to acquire those plants. So it was a, a great learning experience for us as well as our participants. Um, and earlier Russ mentions that he has about 15 to 20 plants that are his standbys. And I think that's interesting to think about. Um, um, and he talks a little bit about a planting strategy it can be a little overwhelming. It can, because there's so many plants out there. There are so many plants. And if you ask a botanist, each botanist will have 15 to 20 or 100 of their favorites. Some of them that we might know the name of. Some of them are so um, maybe small or rare that we've never heard of them and probably never seen them. Um, but, but Russ talks a little bit about a planting strategy um, and and so I think it's really interesting to, to listen to him and let's, let's let him kind of give us the key points that he likes to look for in a planting strategy. I've got to take in a few different things. So we're, we're trying to do some water quality work. So we want shade. Shade helps. Shade helps the uh, keep the water cool. The cooler water helps hold dissolved oxygen. That's better for our aquatic friends. So to get shade, I need trees. Trees are going to be a good thing. Um, and often along these trails and walkways, uh, I try to incorporate some visual interest, something that looks nice. Uh, so I'm going to use some shrubs and some wildflowers. So things that bloom. It's things that bloom. So I try to keep in mind that people are part of this place. And uh, I want to have a nice, enjoyable experience for people, park users, to come down here and, and, and find things that are flowering and find things that are attractive. Um, we also have a lot of birds mentioned earlier, so things that can provide food sources for birds. So they might produce uh, berries. Uh, some of these will produce some nuts for squirrels and other wildlife like that. And um, I just try to kind of work together what's going to be the best fit. And um, so I'm, <laughs> I, I usually come up with, uh, you know, 15 to 20 plants that I, I usually kind of use as my standby and then they work pretty well. They're going to do well with the uh, situations where we have creeks and you might have a lot of flowing water. So they need to be pretty sturdy. Uh, they need to be able to handle periodic inundation. So when water comes up and we get big storms, they need to be able to handle some of that water. And um, um, I like things that are going to grow pretty quick too. Uh, so things that are going to help, uh, again, kind of cover some of this land so that the invasive species have a harder time finding a, a niche to sneak in on. So I try to combine all those things together and and usually have to tweak it one way or another. Russ has talked to us a little bit about his planting strategy, but Russ has lots of these little taglines that he we talked about that he has come up uh, with and does a really good job of explaining and, and, and having analogies and relating, you know, to, to everyday life. Um, so let's let Russ describe his philosophy of cues to care. 
I think of it, I've been using the term nonverbal communication. So this is a visual communication. Uh, we have park users that are going to be young and old. We're going to have park users who might not speak English. So in some times where we might have signage, some people might not see the signs, some people might not be able to read the signs. Um, so I like to use the vegetation to explain what's going on. So in terms of the planting, I spoke a little bit about the different types of plants, but sometimes how I situate the plants, I try to communicate that this is an intentional area. This isn't something that's being neglected. This isn't a place that people just forgot to mow. I like to use uh, intentional placement of things. Uh, it could be you know, a strip of wildflowers or a row of shrubs and, and just some uh, situating plants so that they, they, they communicate that with anybody who kind of walks up to the park, they can see it. And I try to tap into what's kind of an intrinsic understanding that people have when they see something they think it's looks pleasant, it's pleasing to the eyes, it's uh, visually interesting. So I try to incorporate some of that landscaping techniques that I learned uh, 15, 20 years ago and try to incorporate that into uh, an area that we want to be natural that we're trying to achieve some ecological goals, but um, there's gonna be people involved. There's gonna be people who look at this and they may or may not know the plants. They may or may not understand what we're trying to do ecologically, but they're going to see the area. And so I, I try to make it a welcoming uh, area that people want to be in, that they're gonna enjoy in, and they're gonna have a positive experience. So my cues to care is kind of one of my uh, techniques in just terms of where things are situated, how they're placed, uh, to create that, uh, that, that communication, that nonverbal communication to people that, that this is okay to be here, <laughs> um, we've got a plan, and um, it's, it's an enjoyable, positive experience. And oftentimes, too, as a project develops, it's not really going to look like the end result the first year, and it might not be the second year or third year. It might take many years to get a, a planting area to be the forest or to be the savanna or, or be some other ecosystem type that we're looking for. Um, and those things take time and uh, they don't always look good along the way. So having some that, that placement of plant materials intentionally helps people understand that maybe it's not exactly what we want it to look like right now, but just bear with us. We've got a plan and uh, we're gonna get there. And I think that's a really good approach. Um, my experience with stream buffers and planting things um, that maybe get a little wild and woolly, um, people get a little nervous. They're, they start getting concerned about safety things. I think too, personally, I think people feel like it's a bit out of control. And I think our human nature is to try to control our environment. And so um, the cues to care piece, I think is a really, nice way to transition from heavily manicured to more native and wild. Yeah, and I like the idea that he uses patterns as a way, oh, yeah. something that we grow up with and we start to recognize is there a pattern to it. And once we start seeing a pattern, even though it may not be uh, mowed, like we're mostly used to in urban and suburban areas, it kind of gives us a feel that that was intentional. Somebody really put those there. Right, exactly. Um, and something else I want to mention is our listeners might be thinking, you know, I've got a place in my yard. I might want to do something like this or a place on my property. Um, 
and usually the first question is, well, where do I get those? Not just which plants. I guess the second question. The first question is, what plants do I put out? The second question is, okay, now where do I get them? Um, and in in central Kentucky, we have a few options. There's some nurseries that have um, a native plant kind of specialty focus, um, and um, then we you can also do you can buy seed um, as long as you're very care careful to purchase the right kind of seed, um, and those can be ordered through a couple of companies here in in Kentucky too. But I want to point folks to our Central Kentucky Backyard Stream Guide because we do have a list of resources in the back of that publication that help us, will help you if, if our listeners find where those plants are. Another place um, besides what we have listed in the Central Kentucky Backyard Stream Guide is UK also has a horticulture club that grows plants and they use those proceeds to help with club activities. So if you're interested in that, you can visit our website and we'll have links to the plant list from the Hort Club and they can help you with plants they currently have or they can specially grow plants as well. So Russ and I walked on and one thing I noticed while we were out walking around, he had lots of orange ribbon tied around these tiny little plants. Well, first I'll explain the ribbons. Um, we're in a stage where a lot of the trees that we planted, uh, so these were bare root seedlings that some of the fourth and fifth graders here helped me plant. So they were quite small plants when they went in and they're still pretty young. So at present, we've got a lot of grasses that have come up and the grasses are just about as tall. Sometimes they're taller than some of the trees, depends on the species, but that what I'm going to be doing in the next uh, week is coming through, I'm going to be cutting back some of these grasses. I'm going to be cutting back the bush honeysuckle that's coming in. So I'm going to be on weed patrol and I'm marking the flags so I know where they're at, so I can avoid them, I can work around them. And also it kind of helps get an inventory of what we got in here and, and what's doing well. Obviously there's some things that grow a lot quicker than others. Um, I call them the pioneer species. So we can see a wild plum right here on the edge. It's about to uh, come out of its dormancy. It's got buds that are swelling up and going to be flowering in the next, uh, probably in the next few days. Um, right beside it we've got a burr oak and it's a it's an ancient tree. It's going to take a long time for it to get up. So it's quite a bit smaller. Um, so it's going to be later, later on down the road, it's going to be in its prime. Well, Russ just described that he had marked some small seedlings. He also admitted that he marks things that he doesn't know what they are. Um, wintertime plant ID can be really, really tricky. So there's no shame in putting a ribbon on a plant and waiting for the leaves to come out and sometimes even waiting for it to bloom so you can really identify it. Um, but Russ talks a little bit about this idea, I guess, of succession. So Carmen, kind of describe that a little bit for our listeners. Succession, oh wow. So succession plants aren't gonna stay the same. Um, the landscape that he plants is not gonna exactly stay the same. So Russ mentioned in there this idea of pioneer species. So think we think about pioneers, um, maybe in American folklore as the pioneers that came out to the West and, and whatnot. Well, think of pioneer plant species as the first ones to come in. And it's not always going to look the same. So one of the pioneer species um, that he has out there is, say, for instance, like willow. So he plants willow along the stream banks to help stabilize it and hold it in place. But 20, 30 years from now, as the other oaks, uh, trees mature out there, they're going to start to shade it out. 
and those pioneer species, you're not necessarily going to find them. You'll have other uh, like secondary species that come in and succeeded. So that's one thing I think people in urban areas, especially when we start seeing these restoration sites, have to understand that those sites are going to evolve and they're going to change. And it's not just the water where it flows, but it's also going to be the plants. It's like a child. It's going to grow up and mature. And we're going to see those sites do the same thing. Yeah, that reminds me of our project um, out at the horse park when we planted a riparian buffer um, before the World Equestrian Games in 2010. And um, my instructions um, were to make it look as much like a flower bed as possible because that's what they thought people wanted to see. And now, um, you know, eight years later, I've been out and, and it looks completely different. There are plants that we installed that are no longer there. There's some that we didn't install that have come in from the seed bank um, or been brought in by wildlife. And um, so it, it, I thought that, yeah, your analogy of it being like a child and watching the child grow, they, they kind of have their same traits as they began with, but things are a little bit different. So talking about pioneers, I thought this was an interesting um, plant that we found and that is scouring rush. That is some scouring rush. It is a aquatic or riparian plant. Um, it got its name scouring rush because the plant holds a lot of silica in its, in its uh, plant tissue. So I guess the early settlers used it for cleaning pots and pans and scouring. Uh, but it's a fairly coarse um, plant and... Um, is it also called horsetail? I, is, is it I think there's, I think there's, there uh, I think it's something different. I have always heard it called horsetail and Russ said, no, well, that's a different plant. And I thought that was um, a good reminder of how common names can be confusing. Um, so we typically, in scientific terms, speak in Latin names so that those are, are the name of the plant. Um, another plant that he talks about um, is cattail. So we've got some cattail in here. And again, I didn't plant it. It came in on its own. Um, as long as it's not a big bully, it's okay. If it starts crowding everybody out, we're going to have to have a talk. But for now, it's okay. Um, there are, you know, some concerns with cattails being invasive. Um, and I just find that as long as it's in check, I'm, I'm okay with it because it is a good food source and it's a good cover source for a lot of wildlife. Kind of going back to that, that question or that statement you made earlier about, yeah, they're invasives, but they're still plants and they still, they, they do still provide a purpose. But uh, every part of a cattail is edible. So there's a lot of things that can use that cattail uh, as a food source and uh, in cover. Uh, Red-winged blackbirds, they love uh, making nests in little cattail patches. So I'm okay with leaving a little bit um, as long as every, everybody can get along pretty well. It's one of those plants that has a lot of good water quality treatment properties, but if you don't really watch it, it can become what we consider a monoculture or a single plant. And that's the kind of love-hate relationship that goes on with cattails. We like some of the things that they do, but we don't like the fact that they are a bully. They take over. Yeah, they do. Um, I thought it's interesting that he mentioned cat all parts of cattail are edible. I've eaten cattail. Have you eaten cattail? I have not. I have uh, never looked at that plant and thought that makes a good dinner. It looks delicious. <laughs> um, 
When I've eaten it, 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 it's like in the stem and you peel off. You know, what we're used to seeing are the outer um, coarse leaves and of co and then, of course, the um, the seed head, the brown. Looks like a little hot dog. Looks like a hot dog on a stick, right? Um, that I wouldn't eat that part. I think that would be a little fuzzy for eating. But, um, but yeah, you can. It's like down in. There's kind of a fleshy part of the stem and you can open that up and it doesn't really taste like much of anything. Some of the some of our listeners might object with that, but I didn't think it was anything. Maybe a little bit like celery. Um, so the last um, species that um, that we talked a, a little bit about were, was willow. Well, you can see the willows right now. They are starting to uh, leaf out. So they've got a really nice lime green kind of color. It's one of the first trees really starting to leaf out. So this is an exciting time of the year when you see things, you know, reviving and, and coming back to life and, uh, and leafing out again. So we've got some willows down in the floodplain. And, um, and were they there naturally, or did you? We we planted those? those, yeah. Um, that's a great plant for these waterways. Again, I consider it a pioneer species. It's not something that's necessarily going to be here in 25 or 30 years, but for now, uh, we need trees, and it's it's a great tree for that. So I say, come on and and give us some shade, give us some uh, structure over these uh, waterways, and. Um, in years to come, it will be replaced by some of these oaks and other things, sycamores. Um, and, and willow is a pretty common streamside plant, right? It is. Um, and it's one of those plants that gets used a lot in stream restoration because it grows quickly. And it has a good rooting mass so it can hold the stream banks in place. It's also one of those plants that you don't necessarily have to go out and buy because you can harvest it usually um, from different stream banks and do what we call a live stake. Yeah, I think willows are really neat. When I learned about how they reproduce just in a natural setting, you know, they're not a real sturdy branch tree, so they break off easily in storms um, and they will float down the streams, down the river, and then you know, that branch may get lodged in the stream bank or in the sediment and it'll just start a new tree. And that to me is amazing that you can take a willow stake or a stick that's live. And it looks dead. It looks dead. You can put it into the soil and the next thing you know, you've got another tree growing. Yeah, it's, I like willows a lot. I think people kind of have a nostalgic thought of, of willows too. So it's fun. Right here next to us, this is partridge pea. And one reason why I like this plant a lot is uh, it's a legume. So it's going to produce a, a pea pod, and um, that's the name partridge pea. So it's going to help um, get some of the nitrogen that's in the atmosphere and actually provide um, a nitrogen source for some of the plants in the soil. Um, so it's a good soil builder. It um, also just comes along pretty quickly in terms of we can put it out for seed. It's generally, sometimes it's flowering the first year, uh, which we don't often get that with all of our native plants. So we can provide a really good uh, flower so it provides some of that visual interest. And then when it's flowering, I hear all kinds of buzzing and humming going on when the pollinators find it. So it might be some of the honeybees. It might also be some beetles and other kinds of insects that would come to, um, to feed on the nectar. So it's a good uh, plant I like to use 
in terms of just helping to get a really disturbed area when we come through with the equipment and excavators and do a lot of earthwork. It's pretty good at helping to heal that land back and getting some other vegetation established. Well, Russ just described partridge pea, which is a fairly common plant that we use in restoration. Um, I've used those in a multiple native plant seed mixes, um, and it is um, one of those when you seed an area, it's um, you, you feel um, you feel rewarded quickly because it will a lot of times um, germinate, grow, and bloom in the first year. And a lot of our native plants are a little slow to take hold. Um, but Russ mentioned something that I hadn't really thought much about, and that was that partridge pea is really helpful for pollinators. So Carmen, you've put in some pollinator gardens, so that must make your heart happy. It does, and, and that's one of the things that when I do projects, I really try to incorporate plants that are going to help different pollinating species, whether that be in rain gardens, whether it be riparian buffers, or whether that be specifically pollinator gardens off to themselves. So I was really excited um, to hear about Russ talk about partridge pea, but also if you get a chance to walk along the Clay's Mill site or a lot of other restoration sites, I get really happy when I get to see uh, plants that are put in place that offer multiple benefits. So we talked about those multiple ecosystem services. This is another one of them. So everybody likes to eat fruits and vegetables. We need those pollinators for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, Russ had also mentioned during our interview about edible landscapes. And, um, and so I think that's another nice thing that it, it brings in. You, you see things that are blooming. That generally makes all of us soften up a little bit and have a better day when we see a pretty flower. Mm -hmm. But then the bonus of seeing a butterfly or a dragonfly or some other bird, insect, using those plants also that we know we're going to get a benefit from down the road, um, that just kind of adds more bang to the buck. So one last thing that we should consider, I think, with um, the streamside buffers and plantings um, is maintenance. Definitely, because we are so excited about putting in the plants, but we forget what comes afterwards. Yeah, so let's listen to Russ describe his perspective on maintenance. I envision that there's always going to be some level of maintenance. I don't promote the idea of zero maintenance. It can be low maintenance, but not no maintenance. So there's always going to be something. Um, as the years progress, that should diminish in terms of the level of maintenance needed. Typically, my, my primary concern is keeping invasives in check and getting our native plants or whatever we've installed, getting those truly established. So the first five years, I'm really trying to ensure I've got um, a lot of favoritism towards our native plants and um, trying to keep the balance competitive advantage in their favor. So I'm working at suppressing some of the weeds and just ensuring we got good growth of the trees, um, ensuring that if there's anything that gets washed out that we get that reseeded promptly, trying to keep our exposed soils down to absolute minimum. Um, so if I need to come back and do a little more seeding, I can do that. Um, if we need to plant more trees, we can do that too. But I'm really just trying to keep um, our soils protected trying to keep a good stand of our native plants and trying to keep the invasives at bay. Low uh, maintenance, but not necessarily no maintenance, especially when we're talking about urban environments. Um, we have things to, when we have um, 
natural areas that get a lot of visitors and we encourage our listeners to go out and interact with nature and I think everybody should do that and make time for that um, but we also have to think about if there are a lot of people moving around areas that we want those plants to be healthy we want them to be maintained so that the natives take off and they get a good head start um, and, and Russ does mention having a combination of using mechanical means to control weeds, but also herbicides. So do you have any thoughts on that, Carmen? I do. Um, and I think Russ is very practical about that. When you have large areas to maintain, sometimes you have to use herbicides. And Russ is using aquatic safe. So he's near the stream. So he's not just using any type of herbicide. He's being careful about what he puts down but he also has an applicator license so he's gone through the process of being trained in how we do that so if we do have listeners who decide to go that route it's important to understand what you can put down and what you can't again we just really encourage our listeners to get out enjoy nature um, and you know work on your observational skills Russ reminded us that we can learn a lot from just being quiet and kind of um, unplugging a little bit. So I really encourage people, if you're gonna be out in nature, to take your earbuds out, take your headphones off, listen to nature, not just look at it. Um, and then he has a, a closing thought um, about, um, about some of the helpers he had when he planted the stream. So let's listen to that and, and again, remind our listeners to just get outside. That's where I learned a lot. Uh, it wasn't really necessarily learning through a textbook, it wasn't necessarily learning by watching somebody else, but taking a hike and going very slowly and looking at the landscape and looking at creeks and, and see what they can tell you. Because if you're patient enough and, and you got good eyes for it and good ears for it, you can start seeing what the, the native natural areas can tell you. You've been listening to Carmen Agaritas and Amanda Gumbert. Learn more about water at uky.edu forward slash BAE forward slash KYH2O. Subscribe to hear all episodes of KYH2O.